Hey everyone, Dr. Pat and I would personally like to invite you to join us in our Grow My Baby program. This is week-by-week pregnancy and birth information developed from our experience of helping more than 4,000 women grow and birth their babies. All our links are on our website, growmybaby.com.au. If you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you feel a little bit overwhelmed by all you need to know, then this is the right podcast for you. Welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And this is The Kick, your expert-led podcast that delivers the essentials of growing a baby. Make sure you head to our website, growmybaby.com.au, to get some awesome free tools like our Pregnancy Knowledge Checker to help you feel like you got this. Well, welcome everyone. This is episode seven, When Your Baby Comes Too Early. Now, we've all heard the term preemie. And we've seen the little babies in the special care nurseries with their nasogastric tubes, little caps on their heads, and surrounded by monitors. It's a frightening image, but sometimes it always seems to happen to someone else until it doesn't. This podcast is all about defining what prematurity is, what are the known reasons for why a baby comes early, what are the signs that your baby might be coming early, the treatment your baby would need if born early, and the current medical thinking about preventing prematurity. And we end the podcast with what we can all do to support mums of preterm babies. So, Dr. Pat, I know you wanted to include this podcast for something that happened this week. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, sure. This was, you know, amazing. I um, I saw a patient in her mid-40s for a gynecological problem and I vaguely recognised her name, but it wasn't until I saw her face that, that I remembered uh, who she was and 15 years earlier I'd seen the same uh, woman when I was a registrar at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne when she came in from a country area and and had her uh, twins prematurely at 25 weeks 25 weeks yeah so that that's the that's the most extreme prematurity one of those babies um survived one one sadly did not but she's an amazing woman who who had um you know lived through that uh, experience and then uh, our paths met again 15 years later wow that's that's an incredible story and so how common is prematurity well thankfully that type of prematurity is pretty uncommon to that degree in australia about nine percent of babies are born preterm and most of those between 32 and 36 weeks, so early, but not so early that we see major problems. About 1% of those very tiny babies born before 28 weeks. Yeah. I would imagine that having a, a preemie baby, that's what we all talk about, you know, when we know one of our friends has had a preemie baby sure. or something like that, and but we don't really know the difference between the different times that a preemie baby might be born. And it's just really an overarching term, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it just means preterm, you know, less than 37 weeks, but the degree of prematurity is what it's all about. So technically there's preterm, which is 34 to 37, early preterm, which is 32 to 34, very preterm, 28 to 32, and extremely preterm, which is less than 28. Yeah, because I, oh, 28, that's funny. Um, I remember in all of my, pre- well, the pregnancies before I met you and, and got a lot wiser, my first, <laughs> <laughs> my first two pregnancies, and I had 28 weeks as the date marker in my head, uh, where, you know, I felt that if the, if I went into labor and the baby was born, then it had a, a good chance of survival. But that was a bit simplistic, wasn't it? So a 28 weeker is very different from a 37 weeker. 
Well, yeah, massively different. So um, I find it useful to break it down a little bit for people and say that basically in Australia in in 2019, you need to have 24 weeks under your belt for the baby to survive, that you need to get about 28 weeks for the baby to survive and grow up with a good chance of not having disability related to the prematurity. And then here in Ballarat, which is a regional centre, we need to be more than 32 weeks to, to, for the baby to stay here in Ballarat. Okay, so for the regional centres, there's so many in Australia. So mm-hmm. these are, are they community hospitals? That's Usually, a, yeah, yeah, your local community hospital, yeah. yeah. And so what happens to those babies that are... Well, uh, if the baby is um, sick or of a prematurity that, that can't be managed at that hospital, then the baby needs to be transferred to a, a city hospital for a, a high level of care. And ideally, we try and do that before the baby's born. So if I've got a patient who's come, who's at high risk of prem labour or who is coming into prem labour, but the baby's not out yet, it's, it's usually best to stabilise that woman, start some of the preliminary treatment and transfer her to a uh, city hospital so that if she does go on and have that baby in the next 24 hours, the baby's born in the high acuity unit. Right, which is called the NICU. Uh, yeah, so NICU is Neonatal Intensive Care Unit and they have those at big city hospitals. And ideally, if your baby is going to need the NICU, then the mother will actually have that baby in the hospital where the NICU is located. So these are known reasons for prematurity. What what are those known reasons? Yeah, what, what people don't always realise is that a lot of this prematurity are things that we've sort of made to happen on purpose. And, and put simply, it's where we're in a situation where despite the prematurity, the baby is better off out than in. So we're talking about conditions like severe preeclampsia, so severe complicated high blood pressure of pregnancy, severe growth restriction, so that a, a baby is clearly not growing properly, the placenta isn't working well, often as a result of preeclampsia. And uh, we've been doing some very, very careful monitoring, but it's clear after the after careful consideration that a baby's better off out than in, despite only being 27, 28, 29 weeks. Right. And that actually accounts for a lot of the premature birth. And ultimately, that baby, despite the risks of being born that early, if they weren't born that early and a, and that woman had been left undelivered, she, that may have gone on to be a stillbirth situation, which is obviously much worse. Yeah, incredibly sad. So what about the women that I know from our experience at the practice that there's some women that their their waters either start leaking or they their waters break or they go into early labour that way. Sure. So that's the other group. It's women who we haven't um, uh, intervened to end the pregnancy early, but uh, something happens uh, to bring about premature labour. And sometimes that might happen in a setting like the water's breaking too early, followed by a labour, or the labour just starting, or the labour starting or bleeding occurring, which can trigger labour. And do we know why someone might go into early labour in those circumstances? We don't know enough about it, so um, this is a, an area of very important research. Some people are prone to premature labour, and one of the major risk factors of having an extremely premature baby is, have, is having had one before in, the, in a previous pregnancy. And uh, we know some people, uh, for various um, complex medical reasons, are going to are going to be prone to having a, a pregnancy that ends early 
but it's an important field of research. What we'd like to be able to do is to do something to intervene in a preventative way, to do something for everybody, for the whole cohort of pregnant women that would help the small number of women who are going to deliver prematurely and not do so. In the last uh, six months or so, our obstetrics and gynaecology journals that we get, there's been some research done around omega-3 long-chain fatty acids. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I'm talking about. There's been a lot of really interesting research about that. It looks like a subset of those omega-3 fatty acids are probably active within the cervix and they stop the cervix softening prematurely. Cervix is a surprisingly dynamic organ. We think of it being open or closed, but it it actually uh, will soften and shorten before it dilates. And there's a subset of those omega-3 fatty acids that probably work against that process in favour of the cervix staying long and closed. Yeah. And they're also uh, easy to make, cheap to make, and potentially could be given to everybody to help prevent the very small number of people who are going to get into extremely uh, premature labour in the same way that we did with folate for neural tube defects. Yeah. And, you know, there are tablets and there are tablets, aren't they? So people have to be very aware of what sort of uh, omega-3 tablets to take. Yeah, that's right. It's a specific um, subgroup of them. But, um, you know, it's a watch this space thing. I think that that could easily come become uh, very, very um, widespread advice pretty soon. Good. Oh, well, when it comes up, we'll make sure that all our listeners know and they know how much to take and when to take it and when to start and when to stop. So, yeah, keep listening. We'll... we'll um tell you as soon as we know more. Yeah, that's, that's an exciting uh, development. And you said when to stop, that's relevant too because you want the cervix to soften yeah, at, at the end. at some point. You yeah. don't want to be pregnant forever. Yeah, so yeah. in the studies they, they got people to stop taking it around about term so that it wasn't making the pregnancy go too long. Yeah. So since we're talking about how you can lower your risks for prematurity, what, what are other things that you could do? I think the best things that, that an individual woman can do is make, firstly to have her best health before she's pregnant in the first place. So um, important things like having a normal body weight is certainly going to reduce the, the chances for that woman of, of getting complications like preeclampsia and like diabetes, which can lead to interventions, which can lead to uh, prematurity. Hang on, when we're talking about normal body weight, are we talking about BMI or... How does somebody assess their normal body weight? Oh, BMI is a—it's it, one tool. It's—it's it's probably a little flawed, but it's one tool that um, that you can use just to to make sure that you're as close as you can to the healthy range on on BMI. And then uh, World Health Organization—you can Google this easily. World Health Organization weight gain in pregnancy, and they've published a, t- a table saying if you start off at BMI of XYZ, then a reasonable amount of weight for you to gain in the pregnancy is, is blah, blah, blah. Good. All right. Um, and that's easy for people to find. All right. Well, that's the second thing we'll put in the uh, show notes. We'll Good. put the link to that World Health Organization. Good. I use that one all the time. It's nice for people to have an idea at the start yeah. of what a reasonable weight gain is within the pregnancy. And they know that within that projected weight gain, there's three and a half kilos of baby and some placenta and all the water and the big uterus. So uh, a lot of that comes off straight away. And then the rest is what we have to take off to get back to our pre-pregnancy weight. Yeah. So being in good nick to start with is um, one of the really powerful things that we can do so that we have less chance of developing a complication that may lead to premature birth. 
and the other is having any existing health issues optimised. So, for example, somebody with type 1 diabetes, we want that to be as well managed as possible, as, as, as strictly managed as possible. Someone with a problem of drugs and alcohol ideally is managed before they get pregnant and so forth, you know. Smoking. Absolutely smoking. So that's a perfect example. Smoking can give you a, a small placenta with stiff blood vessels, which can lead to growth restriction, which means that you have an ultrasound and the baby's way too small and struggling to survive. And we have to fish that. We have to whip that baby out at 30 weeks because mm. it might not be alive at 31 weeks. And uh, of course, if we'd given up the smokes before we started, we'd have a much less chance of that, of that scenario of it progressing in that direction. Yeah. So are there any other things that someone can do to lower the risk of prematurity? I think that um, being in an appropriate level of antenatal care is really important. Uh, so if you've had a 28-weeker before, then you need to be in an appropriate level of antenatal yeah. care. And by that, I mean seeing obstetricians in a hospital, which uh, not everybody needs, but that woman would need. Yeah. And uh, being under a, under a very watchful eye, multiple scans to make sure the baby's growing, strict attention to, to uh, blood pressure, things like um, the administration of antenatal steroids. So if someone's at high risk of having their baby early, we'll give a big dose of cortisone to that woman, which kickstarts the baby's lung development. So if the baby's born at 32 weeks, but you've given the steroids, then the baby will be born with lungs more like like a 35-weeker yeah. and we'll, we'll go better in the nursery and be discharged earlier and, and uh, we can do that if we have identified that woman as someone at high risk of preterm labour or preterm birth and we can do that if, that if that woman's in the right stream of antenatal care. Yeah. And then there's, there's a few other things about what can be done to, to prevent. There are some cases where progesterone supplementation in pregnancy can help prolong the pregnancy you know, it's not the cure for everything, but um, certainly in women where a short cervix is part of the problem, the data on on uh, um, vaginal supplementation of progesterone is um, it definitely helps. You're listening to the Kick with Dr. Pat and Bridget. How many times have you Googled something about your pregnancy? When I was pregnant all the time, Dr. Pat. <laughs> we get it. You may be confused or overwhelmed. It's normal to want information, but where's the reliable stuff from experts? Yeah. Now, if you like our podcast, Dr. Pat and I have developed an online program to help guide you through whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. It's taken us literally two years to put it together. Two long, hard years, wasn't it? <laughs> but, you know, it is a game changer in how pregnancy information is given. Now, how it works is uh, you get to sign up at whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. Like, So you could be pre-pregnant in your very early stages of pregnancy, late pregnancy, preparing for birth, or maybe you've just brought your baby home. And you get lots of information around that. And then you also get to join our closed Facebook group. We've called in all our contacts too. So we've got a dietitian, an anaesthetist, physiotherapist. Sonographer. Yeah, who else? A pediatric nurse, obstetrician, mother of four. Oh, just all the people you need to hear from. So if that's you, come and join us at www.growmybaby.com.au. You mentioned short cervix. So uh, in one of my pregnancies, I'm pretty sure it was my second, uh, they thought that I had a short cervix, except back then they called it an incompetent cervix. 
Is that the same thing? Yeah, not not well. Incompetent cervix is one of those terms we've got rid of, thankfully. So it's insufficient cervix. Insufficient. Yeah, yeah. So incompetent cervix is like geriatric pregnancy. Pregnancy. It's a dreadful term. Yeah. I just remember thinking already, it's my body is sort of failed. Yes, you're incompetent. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah, incompetent. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's so we've got rid of that one. So it's an insufficient cervix. Just means a, a cervix that might get short and come open t- too early. And and th- these days the scanners are good. They'll uh, routinely measure cervical length on on routine pregnancy uh, ultrasound. Yeah, and is um, that a an average? Does everyone have about the same length of cervix? Or I'll give or take should be about you know about four centimeters long and closed. And if it's if it looks like it's short or something called beaking where it's trying to come open, then um, the sonographer will, will report that, and uh, we can then pay careful attention to that woman and do what we can to prevent the um, cervix um, opening too soon. I'm just remembering a uh, lovely patient that you did a procedure on to help with a shortening cervix. Yeah, so in a true case of cervical insufficiency, the cervix is it's probably structurally abnormal and it comes open way too soon and leads to um, a relatively painless second trimester loss of the pregnancy. So it's not so much a proper labour as the cervix just can spring open. Yeah, way before viability, so way before 24 weeks. And if a woman's had a, a story of that, that, you know, sort of a textbook story of that, um, and there is something sort of inherently uh, weak or, or, or insufficient about the cervix, then it's probably going to happen again. So uh, some women benefit from stitching the cervix closed. Mm. So uh, that's an operation that, can be done um, vaginally or, or more recently a technique's been developed to do it laparoscopically. And uh, I think the lady you're thinking of was one of the first ones I did laparoscopically and that, that was very exciting. So um, Because she went on and had a, a baby. And- uh, I think the one you're thinking of, that woman uh, went on to have a, a successful term pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. The laparoscopic um, approach has got some pros and cons, but the um, relatively challenging surgery. But it does mean that the stitch is up on your insides where there aren't any germs mm. rather, rather than in the vagina, which has got bacteria that can affect the quality of the stitch. And I'd just like to remind our listeners of all the thousands of patients that um, Pat's help uh, birth their babies. That's like one, one or two people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. That, this, yeah. We're, 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 we've strayed from um, what is common so in any in any discussion about the technical medical aspect of of pregnancy care it's going to lean towards discussion of abnormalities yeah but of course most people don't develop any abnormalities yeah all right so someone has gone into early labor and they've had their little preemie baby what what are some of the common short-term problems that that baby might have well Again, it all depends on the degree of prematurity. That's super important to understand. But, um, you know, uh, overarching uh, sort of headings, they, they have breathing problems. The more premature you are, the worse the breathing is. The lungs, you know, good functioning lungs are one of the sort of last things to develop during pregnancy. And uh, they'll all be a bit short of breath. Most people have seen a, a baby in an isolate where they can um, dial up the oxygen to higher levels than are in room air. And so the, a, a baby born mildly premature might be in that isolate for a few days, breathing air with a higher percentage concentration of oxygen. And then the clever paediatricians will just dial that percentage down. And once that's the same as room air, you can open the lid and let the baby out. They get feeding problems. Sucking is, uh, again, it's a, it's a thing that term baby comes out um, hungry. 
especially the big hungry hippo ones, they, they're good at sucking. They'll get straight on a breast or a bottle and suck. But prem babies find that exhausting. So um, often a nasogastric tube um, down the nose, down the back of the throat and into the stomach to, um, to give that baby breast milk or formula. Uh, they can get, you know, bleeding problems. Prem babies are at risk of bleeding into important structures like around the brain. Infections. They are particularly uh, prone to picking up infections, so cleanliness is important in the nursery, and they're often treated carefully with antibiotics uh, to, um, in that scenario. Sometimes it might have been an infection in mum that triggered the prem labour. Yeah. And then the baby comes out through the vagina where there are bacteria, and the baby might come out at high risk of infection from the get-go. Mm. Hypothermia, they get cold, so that they're not very good at regulating uh, their heat. A full-term, big chubby full-term baby get cold very easily. In the operating theatre, which we like to keep a bit cold, if a baby's born by a caesarean section, one of the first things we really want to do is wrap it up because it's cold in there. And um, prem babies are particularly um, are prone to um, getting too cold. The blood sugar getting too low. So lots of babies born early could get uh, hypoglycemia and they used to use a lot of drips, run some sugar into the baby's vein. Now they use a, sometimes in our uh, in our unit, they use a gel that can be rubbed around the baby's gums. Yeah, wow. Um, which is a, a less invasive way of giving a baby a shot of sugar. And other things that any baby can get, but it's much more common when you're premature, like um, jaundice. Prem babies are often under those jaundice lights. Yeah. And is it true that a prem baby stays in the hospital until at least their due date? Well, yes and no. They might have to, and a sick preemie might be in the hospital much longer than their expected due date. But it's more about their progress, how they improve, how they get stronger, bigger, better feeders, better breathers. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, that's a lot of short-term issues, but the baby goes home normally with all of those issues resolved. Or are there some long-term problems for prem births? Yeah, again, highly dependent on the degree of prematurity. So one of the reasons why it's a research priority to try and really work out the true causes of premature labour and ways that we can prevent it is that lots of childhood disability that becomes adult disability starts with prematurity. So a baby that's born you know, late preterm might have nothing, nothing wrong at all. A few few days in the nursery and is fine, but a baby with um, with severe prematurity, very very early birth, runs a risk of permanent disability, um, deafness, cerebral palsy, intellectual disability, that can affect that person for life. So again, that's very preterm. That's less than one percent of all births. The very preterms have the highest risk, yeah. and they're less than one percent. Yeah, that's right. I think it's really important to really clarify. important to say to our <laughs> listeners: don't panic. I mean, I'm I'm panicking just listening to this. But, but these are the things that people worry about, and why? And why wouldn't you? That's a worrying thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, that milestone model. When you think I've got to get to 24, then I've got to get to 28, then I've got to get to 32. Normal, healthy people do that. Yeah, big, big, who aren't at especially high risk of prem birth, because it's normal to be worried about things. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why we're talking about this in the podcast is that people, we don't want people to be blindsided. This is about, again, our premise that when a woman knows better, she goes better. Absolutely. So, you know, my advice is that we, you listen to this, you take it in, but don't take it on board. 
Yes, don't don't let it add to your worries. Yeah. Uh, I think that um, knowing about some of the complexity of obstetrics and some of the possible complications, we think is part of a sort of a desirable level of pregnancy literacy. Yeah. And it probably suits some people to not know anything that could go wrong and just hope for the best. But um, I think it's clear that if you know a bit about this, um, that, that, that that is useful and helpful. Yeah. I think what also would be useful and helpful is that, you know, if you did have a preemie baby, uh, it's often a, a huge learning curve about the hospital system, isn't it? So, Pat, can you just describe to our listeners what happens in a scenario where a baby's born at, I don't know, 33 weeks, which is kind of like a, a common-ish preterm? Yeah, so if that happened, um, let's take the, a common scenario that, that we would see every year of um, a twin pregnancy where the waters break at 33 weeks. That's a super common thing to happen. When a woman with twins gets to about 33 weeks, her, her belly is bigger than a term singleton pregnancy. And uh, it's like a balloon. You can only blow it up so far and the, the waters will break. So those babies would typically be admitted to our special care nursery. So special care nurseries are for the babies later on. NICUs is neonatal intensive care unit for babies that are extremely premature or very sick. So the special care nursery is where they um, have those isolates and they feed the babies, support breathing. And it's not that uncommon for a baby to be admitted to the special care nursery for um, some... Just even the first night observation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, mild prematurity, a bit of jaundice, baby that's irritable, um, at risk of infection, so forth. So when we book our obstetric patients into our local um, private hospital and they do the tour to familiarise themselves with the, with the environment, they get a tour of the nursery as well, take some of the mystery out mystery of it. Mystery out of it, it's a yeah. good idea, yeah. I highly recommend doing that. If you haven't really booked in or you don't know which hospital you're going to be booking into, you know, make those decisions and then go and have the hospital tour. You've got to have a look. Yeah, you've got to have a look, yeah. So there's also, just from a practicality point of view, that so once a baby is born preemie and goes off to the special care nursery, they're now an inpatient, aren't they? Uh, yeah, that's right. That, that baby becomes a patient in the hospital in, in their own right. Yeah, yeah. because in a um, full-term birth it's only the mother that's the inpatient and the baby's an outpatient. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. For for funding and billing yes. type yeah, reasons, yeah. the baby isn't, isn't officially a patient in the hospital if they don't need care from a paediatrician or attention in their own right. Yeah. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is it is a bit of a bill shock for some people. I know this is a side note, but um, when... When, for example, they've had a baby at term and they have a paediatrician or someone come to visit them in the hospital, mm -hmm. they will get a bill from whoever visits the baby. So if there's a paediatrician visiting the baby, they will be sent a, a bill. It's not covered in the inpatient costs. That's true. But to be more accurate, uh, if it's just for the paediatrician to give the baby the once over, then that would normally be a known and, and uh, not excessive um, fee. Yeah. But if the baby needs elaborate care, then the baby will be admitted as, a, as, as, an, a, inpatient. as an inpatient, yeah. typically covered under the parents' insurance, and then that would be funded care from then on. Yeah. So they're in the, in the, you're in the special care nursery. What can happen? Can the mother hold the baby? Well, it depends on the level of prematurity. I keep saying that, but obviously it's, it's, that's critical. So, yeah, you can hold the, the baby in the special care nursery and the uh, isolates have got a little window in the side and you can open that and, and reach in and touch the baby. Yeah. And uh, a baby may not need to be in there the, the whole time. 
and then um, the environment in a neonatal intensive care unit is is like an adult intensive care unit. It's a highly highly regulated environment that some um, uh, people find very challenging. Mm. I want to um, just go to our uh, journal, and so there's this couple, Scott and Joanne, that have uh, had they had Premi twins, and then they formed the Helping Little Hands Foundation mm-hmm. to help other parents. Uh, with the time that they have a preemie baby and they're in the hospital. But I just thought it would be really interesting just to read out um, how the father was feeling and then the mother. But Scott says, people don't seem to understand the need to be with Lewis. Lewis is the surviving twin. My sister said, well, it's not like he knows you're there. My mum wants me to take it easier on myself and go and play golf with dad. I know that they're doing their best, but they don't understand that time away from Lewis just makes it worse. It adds to the guilt. It adds to the fear of what we'll find when we see him next. The support from our friends is dropping away too. I suppose people assume Lewis is fine, assume we've learned to cope. It feels like we're on this roller coaster alone. So I just wanted to sort of talk about how we can support ourselves and others that perhaps are in the hospital with a preemie baby. And part of it is what the mother said. And she said, the power of someone just caring, someone to talk to, is the thing that sort of helps and gets her through. So, you know, it is a lonely time. Often the baby stays in for far longer. Yes. The mother, you know, she's given birth. She might two, three days in the hospital, but then she's she's able to be discharged. Yeah. So I think that um, useful things that people can do really is to, you know, is to be present with those people, to, to turn up and to keep turning up. Yeah. And to acknowledge the complexity of the problem. It's a, you know, it's a big deal. And uh, we all keep, you know, in a crisis, we'll all we'll all sort of say encouraging things, but we need to back those up with some actions. Yeah, I find the we all do it. I do it too. I, I'm practicing not doing it, but the call me if you need anything or sing out if you need some help. Yes, I don't find that a very useful thing to say in these times because the parents are probably overwhelmed. It's better to say, "I can come in on Tuesday. Yes. Would you like me to bring you a change of clothes?" Or whatever it might be. Exactly, exactly right. Rather than leaving it to the person to ask you for help. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing that you know, with a thirty-three weeker, that baby, they might be in the hospital for five weeks, six yep. weeks. Yeah. So don't stop caring. You never stop caring, but don't stop supporting. Yeah, and and expressing your care and acknowledging what the, the family going through. Yeah. All right. So we've talked uh, a little bit about the program during this podcast. So if you're interested in finding out about the Grow My Baby program then just jump onto our website, www.growmybaby.com.au slash program and join our wait list to find out the minute it launches. And if you haven't already subscribed, make sure you search for the show in your podcast app of choice or listen at growmybaby.com.au and by subscribing, you'll be alerted to when our next episode hits, which is all about why the position of your placenta is important. Bye for now. Bye for now.